Plowing old patterns, raising new ground. Hello, and welcome to episode three of Beneath Clouded Hills. This podcast is part of a wider art project by Verity Burton and myself, Una Hamilton-Heller, in which we explore the meaning of the term Deep England. This research project included an immersive exhibition at Block Projects in Sheffield in the summer of 2023, which used lighting, sound, installation and video to evoke a more sensual and embodied experience of landscape. We wanted to delve into this part of the project a bit more, so in this episode, we'll share how we as artists have made work in response to the complexities of Deep England. We will continue our conversations with others that are asking similar questions to us, but we will also be sharing some of our audio work from the exhibition. So join us as we descend into the subterranean, asking what new myths are seeping up from below. This episode is called Lesions in the Land. I'd like to tell you a story about how England came to be. I'll relay it back exactly as a wise man once told it to me. It starts with 30 giants, sisters all each a powerful queen, who would not obey their husbands and so were cast into the marine. Three days and nights it took them, only fortune to steer their sail, but arrived they did across the sea to cliffs so white and pale. Albion was this island fair, the eldest named it so. She grabbed the soil thus possession took, of land and kin and foe. In this strange place their beasts did roam, but people they'd never been. So they made their homes amongst the growth, and longed for babes to wean. Ask me not of how it came to be, but I know there were spirits there. And in their dreaming seeds were sown, as the sisters became aware. From these couplings grew a race of giants hideous and strong, and their kin lived on in hilly dales till Brutus came along. This tyrant made them flee below, in slumber the giants wept, but wait they do for the call to come, to rise again from their depth. This story is based on an Anglo-Saxon origin tale of England. It starts off a short film we made for our exhibition. According to this tale, these giantesses were the first to arrive on England's shores. They called their new home Albion, after Albina, the eldest of the sisters. Here they procreated with spirits and lived in harmony until their shores were invaded by Brutus of Troy, who banished them underground. English stories from old myths to modern children's books are full of giants, kings and dragons slumbering below, waiting to arise again when the time is right. Perhaps it's from this story that they originate. William Blake also references the giant Albion in his poem Jerusalem, the emanation of the giant Albion. The spectre of Blake seems to be following us. He comes up a lot when we speak to artists about deep England. 
Gazelle Twin and Nix mentioned him as an inspiration, as did writer, radio presenter and DJ Zakia Sewell when we sat down with her. Zakia is well known for her podcast series My Albion, in which she goes on a quest for mythical Britain to find a version of Albion that she could identify with. We spoke to her about what she discovered. In terms of my experience of it, I guess, yeah, like I explore in the series, I think my initial experience of that sort of myth and magic and mystical element was um, growing up in Wales. spent a lot of time in Wales as a child, in West Wales, in a place called Larne, which is just down the road from Carmarthen, which is supposedly the birthplace of Merlin. So there's sort of, it's a, it's a landscape that's rich in myth and legend and, um, you know, ruined castles and stories of sort of Merlin, you know, in the wind and but also in the land the landscape there is very magical it's very it's it 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 carries an energy and not that I was necessarily aware of that as a child I was just sort of like you know frolicking around you know bog jumping and you know climbing ruins and setting fires in forests and all that kind of stuff but that I guess laid the foundation for an encounter um a sort of an experience of that mystical mythical magical aspect of the country and then as I grew older um it was through the music but also the stories you know the legends of King Arthur the legends of the Mabinogion the psychedelic music of the 60s that is sort of so connected to the the, the landscape you know whether it's Pentangle or Donovan or even you know early Mark Boland stuff it's all this kind of like weird old mythical sort of it's 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 really it's really rich while making this podcast it has become clear that there are many like us who feel a longing to connect more deeply to this place that we happen to live in and many look for this connection in nature and through the land searching for history and meaning or perhaps a sense of presence wordsworth experienced this presence as low breathings coming after him whereas the knight Sir Gawain described it as Etin's Analedenhim, giants blowing after him. And I really like this idea of the sort of genius, genus loci, right? This idea of spirit of place and that there is a character, there is a, there are sort of spirits of the land and that they are um, specific to specific places and that there's a sort of energies and you be, you spend enough time in those places and you begin to tune in and then the artists and the creatives and those of us who are in tune who are listening can draw that you know bring that spirit into being and can manifest it in in the world and that sort of connects to my idea of Albion and in a way that my 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 understanding of Albion is sort of shifting um and in my current project I'm kind of thinking about Albion as a spirit not just the sort of place but the spirit of Albion in that way of a kind of a spirit that speak, that, that's connected to the land, that is embodied in the land, that speaks out to those who will listen. And um, questioning, you know, why has the spirit of Albion, you know, it's been speaking to me because I'm not the obvious sort of can, candidate in, in many ways. But that for, for whatever reason, I feel compelled to do this spirit's work. Um, so I like that idea that there that there are these sort of energies, spirits, how we want to describe them, that are present in particular landscapes that are that are specific, that then we can tune into and bring them out. And maybe that is, maybe that sort of mythical, magical 
sort of the Arthurian, the everything that we're talking about is connected to some sort of inherent spirit of Britain. But then I think there's also problematic elements of that. You know, that's it's also that that sort of thinking can um, easily stray into ideas of blood and soil, and you know particular British temperament and why we're different to the others and da 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 and it's a bit essentialist as well isn't it it's sort of you know when you think about the work of people like Cecil Sharp who you know through through his study of English folk culture and customs were was searching for exactly that this true spirit of England and that that can be very exclusionary as well so so it's kind of it's it's complicated but yeah I mean I must say that I've not felt that feeling in many other places uh, when I was in Colombia I was sort of being reminded of Wales <laughs> you know I'm constantly it's always bringing me back to Britain but um I think there's there's a beauty in that there's a beauty in the idea that yeah different places carry this different energy and they produce different stories and they produce different sounds and traditions and customs and it's not about any of them being better or worse than the other or you know but yeah it's it is it is a mystery it is a mystery Something else we discussed were the concepts of nationalism and patriotism. Because although Deep England might be an imaginatively expansive place, we can't get away from the fact that it specifically refers to a nation-state. One could of course argue that nations are constructs too, but they are constructs that are widely enough recognised to have become a shared reality. A reality which breeds strong feelings of loyalty, belonging, inclusions and exclusions. We asked Zakia how she navigates these concepts. I think being in and out, being mixed heritage, being Caribbean and British complicates any sort of sense of national pride Um, because I have first-hand experience in my family of the horrors of empire and enslavement and it's very real. So... So, yeah, so nationalism, you know, never. Patriotism, what, I mean, I guess it'd be interesting to really drill into the definitions of what the differences are. Patron feels like a kind of nationalism light. It feels like a kind of bit more like it's to do with love. But is it? Because, you know, to be a true patriot, what does it take? And I think the con, I think the con is the idea that, you know, it's unpatriotic to be critical and it's the biggest con because to 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 be invested enough in a place and to care enough about a place that you wish that it would it was better and that you were going to fight for cha- for the change that would make that place a better place seems to me the kind of ultimate patriotic act as opposed to clinging on to your power clinging on to your false narratives and your false stories that are actually exclusionary and toxic that actually make the place a worse place, you know. Ultimately, surely that that is that that's the unpatriotic uh, act. I think that that to me is a con. But yeah, really, I I think those words are just too loaded for me to ever really want anything anything to do with them. But yeah, in the series, I talked to a writer called Alex Niven. He talks about progress, you know, progressive patriotism. What would that look like? And he talks about really these big notions of place such as Britain to be proud to be British it's like a political entity it's not really a real place that you can properly connect to in a meaningful way it's just too vast what does it even mean it brings together all these different um, identities experiences you know cultures 
England even still is, you know, so why don't we think about the places that we're actually connected to, the places that we've spent time in, they're a bit more manageable um, to actually think about. Like, are you proud to be from your little region? He was like, I'm proud, I'm a proud Northumbrian. That's a bit more, that makes a bit more sense to him. Or I could say, I'm proud to be a Londoner, or I'm proud to, that I've spent time in Wales and I love, in, you know, in Larne in Wales, so that's a place that I've been connected to. And, and that way, it's not exclusionary because anyone who's spent a bit of time in that place can then sort of lay claim to that place and express a love. And it's a bit more, it's a bit more manageable. No wonder that butter's a shilling a pound. See those rich farmers' daughters, how they ride up and down. If you ask them the reason they say bonnerless, there is a French war and the cows have no grass. Singing honest is all out of fashion. These are the rigs of the time, timey boys. These are the rigs of the time. Now here's to our landlord, I must bring him in. Charges toppence a pint and yet thinks it no sin. When he do bring it in, the measure is short, and the top of the pint is all covered in froth. Singing honest is all out of fashion. These are the rigs of the time, time boys. These are the rigs of the time. And here's to the butcher, I must bring him in. Charges fourpence a pound and yet thinks it no sin. Slaps his thumb on the scales and makes it go down. He declares it's full weight, yet it lacks half a pound. Singing honest is all out of fashion. These are the rigs of the time, time boys. These are the rigs of the time. And here's to the baker, I must bring him in. Charges a halfpenny a loaf and yet thinks it no sin. When he do bring it in, it's no bigger than your fist. And the top of the loaf has popped off with the yeast. Singing honest is all out of fashion. These are the rigs of the time, time boys. These are the rigs of the time. Now here's to the tailor who skimps with our clothes. And here's to the cobbler who pinches our toes. Our bellies are empty, our bodies are bare. No wonder we've reason to curse and to swear. Honest is all out of fashion. These are the rigs of the time, time boys. These are the rigs of the time. Now the very best thing that I could find is to toss them all up in a high gale of wind. When the wind did to blow, the balloon it would burst, and the biggest old rascal come tumbling down first. Singing honest is all out of fashion. These are the rigs of the time, time boys. These are the rigs of the time. You know, I think part of the appeal of the mythological and the, and the symbolic is that's what's kind of been discarded in our in Western culture. 
through, as you mm-hmm. mentioned, the sort of process of enlightenment, which is in itself very, you know, needs a lot of critique. So there is this sort of, you know, that symbolic myth, you know, the mythical, magical worldview, you know, which is also so t- t- tied up in the colonial project and the sort of dismissal of cultures that sort of embody that and live more in that in that worldview or value that perhaps more than the sort of rational, enlightened, dualistic way of seeing and knowing the world that um, we're very much in over here. Um, but the danger is that then, yeah, there's a sort of return, there's a yearning to just return. So you kind of go, okay, well, let's forget this rational, materialistic world and let's just go the other way. You know, let's forget the mind and let's just go back to the body and ultimately I think what we need to move towards if we are to survive (laughs) is a a harmony and a balance between the two and that's also connected you know it's sort of connected to the masculine and the feminine not even to do with gender like biological gender but just as these sort of opposite poles um the rejection of the feminine it's sort of like it just it it's about balance and I think it's you know, when I think about my own practice and my own vision and my, where I'm at and where I stand in, in relation to all of this, is that I'm, in, I'm very, I'm one. In, I don't, I'm not. In ways, I'm really woo woo, but I'm also really rational as well. And it's sort of like trying to inhabit both those spaces at the same time. Sort of, yes, I like to be carried away with, with the fairies, but I am also deeply critical, and I know that there's a real on the ground work that needs. It's sort of like being of the earth and of the sky at the same time and I think that's what we are as humans and I think that's what we're not we're not really in balance at the moment so I think that's kind of what we need to work towards is like okay well we can take all the myth and the magic and the sort of new agey stuff and the fairies and the angels and spirits but (laughs) we need to deal with like the hard stuff on the ground as well can we be in both places at once that's the sort of challenge I guess that so there's a sort of darkness to it but then I like I also like the idea of yeah thinking about deep deep time and in a sense that darkness that we're talking about of sort of nationalism and colonialism and all the sort of ghosts um that are sort of haunting the psyche of the nation um at present really that chapter of English history British history is actually very short and so to expand our sense of time and is sort of also brings hope and I think that's also why I've been drawn to that more ancient sort of sense of Britain because there's so much more than that. We spoke about the giants of Albion with Zakia and discussed the myths parallels with other narratives of mythical kingdoms from Shambhala to Atlantis but what do the giants mean to her? If they were to awaken today, what would actually happen to England? If I was to think about what that buried giant meant to me, I think it's it would be, you know, my hope, you know, what what would I like to return? What would I like to see come to fruition? What's missing in this present moment? And I think it is. It's a, you know, re-enchantment, kind of re-engaging with mystery, and magic and moving out beyond a worldview in which everything has to be known, mapped and measured. Um, 
and um, sort of just yeah, fr- kind of a freeing up of who of humans of who, of who we are. Of kind of we're just so we're so kind of boxed in and repressed in so many ways, and um, just kind of a re um, reconnecting to sort of radical a radical hope, a radi- just a kind of radical energy of change. Um, those are the things that I would sort of hope for. And who knows whether though they were there in the past. I think we'll never, you know, that that's also part of the fantasy element is that, that we could know what, that the giant was there or what it was like. We'll never really know, but I think the promise of hope and of sort of reawakening, I think, is is useful regardless of, you know, when, whether any of those things existed in, in, in deep, back in Deep England or not. This message of hope really resonated with us as we've been wondering ourselves where to find an imaginative and land-based mythos for England today, one that is radically inclusive rather than parochially exclusionist. Perhaps by rupturing the pastoral surface and listening to the land as a living body with all its messy and leaky potential, we can understand more about Albion. In spring 2022, we went on an artist residency at Creswell Crags in Worksop near Sheffield. We were inspired by this cave system as the only known site in England containing a rich and sedimentary assemblage of Ice Age art, Neanderthal and Homo sapien tools and bones of extinct prehistoric animals. It seems that the caves have always attracted superstition, as there are also hundreds of apotropaic symbols, so-called witch marks, carved all over the interior walls. Usually we see these type of marks around domestic windows, doors and fireplaces, there to ward off evil spirits. But here, they seem to be used to keep something inside, gathered as they were around a hole deep in one of the caves. During the last Ice Age, between around 43,000 and 10,000 years ago, this cave marked the threshold of land and ice, a refuge from the glaciers, tundra and hostile climate. Today it straddles an arbitrary line drawn between two counties, Nottinghamshire and Derbyshire. When the British Isles were joined to the continent, generations of people would migrate here from Central Europe, following herds of reindeer and auroch. After Brexit, when the UK separated itself from the European community, it's refreshing to think of the land without borders and nations, open to constant movement. With another shift in climate underway, this time man-made, perhaps these Ice Age peoples have something to tell us of adaptation, interdependence and hope. So the oldest material we have is 125,000 years old. So that's the last interglacial, so the last one period before the present. While on our residency, we met with Anne Harrod Jones, paleontologist and curator at Creswell Crags. We asked if she could explain a bit more about the history of Creswell Crags. And for this, she took us on a journey through deep time. The species we had here were hippopotamuses, hyenas, giant deer, um, narrow-nosed rhinoceros, um, but... In the country at that time, there were no human species and there were no horses either. So, completely absent from the country. The next deposits are the middle of the last glacial, and radiocarbon dates on the uh, specimens from Crystal Crags are roughly around about 50 to 40,000 years old. So, we had the hyenas again, but we had cold uh, species, cold adapted species. So, woody rhinoceros, woody mammoths, reindeer. We had the horse here, and at that time, we had Neanderthals. So, no Neanderthal remains have been found, but we have abundant evidence of their stone tools. 
and I guess then the next major deposits are from the late glacial. Um, so we've got ones dating to around about 15 to 14,000 years ago and the animals include horse and mountain hare and they exhibit cut marks by Homo sapiens so indicating that Homo sapiens were using the horse and the mountain hare for things like food but also we've got some tools made out of bones like we've got an awl and um, sort of a needle so indicating that they're also working the, the hides of the animals as well maybe for clothing um, We've got tools that were made by, stone tools made by the Homo sapiens, and then we've got the rock art as well in Churchill. Archaeological excavations reveal stories of migration, global trade, changing climate and extinction. But what would an artistic excavation look like? The speculative potential of prehistory is compelling, imagination having to fill the gaps. After sifting through the archive at Creswell Crags' research centre, we found it highly methodical and academic. However, moments of intimacy and poetry punctuated the statistical analysis. Field notes scribbled on age graph paper, close-up photographs of hands clutching soil, and paintings that imaginatively reconstructed Ice Age life. Even with all this data collected on the caves, though, something was missing. Something experiential, practice-based knowledge. What effect did the cave have? What did it feel like? And what did it sound like? Did the cave have its own genius loci, its own spirit of place? In order to fill this gap in the material, we decided to bring a more intuitive and collaborative approach. So we invited vocal trio Crone, which consists of Freya Barlow, Blue Firth and Isabel Jones, to join us in the dark. As a trio, they work extensively with multivocal and sonic experimentation, and together we leaned into the imaginative qualities of the cave embracing our sensory responses to the environment. We channeled improvised sounds and harmonies and played with the cave's spatiality and atmosphere, letting the physical feeling of being there affect us, the dampness and temperature, the acoustic resonance and our knowledge of its previous history. We recorded these sessions and from them made a work in surround sound. This was installed in our exhibition at Block Projects. We would now like to invite you on this journey with us. If you're not wearing headphones, we'd recommend that you put some on and maybe find a nice place where you can sit and close your eyes as we wind our way through the limestone landscape of the Creswell Gorge, through the gates of the cave and eventually descend into deep England.
The cave held a different reality than that which we had left outside in the early summer light, resisting a linear relationship to time. And as we stood there, enveloped in darkness, our bodies seemed to blend in with the cave and the cave with us. It was a fluid and permeable state, where the body was inside and outside at the same time, with geology, mind and land seeping in and out of us. We were both states of being and sights in ourselves. This leaky intersubjectivity was disorientating, but at the same time the erasing of boundaries, and therefore hierarchies, felt necessary, especially in light of all the conflicting ideas that Deep England had brought up.
So on our journey, we have found that there are many sides to Deep England. There is the green and pleasant land of rolling hills and winding lanes. But this is a slightly nostalgic and rigid imagining of pastoral surface. Although seductive, this feels to us outmoded and stagnant. However, through our conversations with artists, musicians and academics, we have found another version of Albion, one that is radical, but also inclusive, filled with mystery and enchantment. The caves at Creswell Crags acted as a portal to this place. By literally tunnelling deep under England's clouded hills, we found a strange and animate land, a land that has deep links to the past, but also looks towards a hopeful and creative future. This episode is part of Legion Project's audio and podcast series, Plow and Old Patterns, Raising New Ground, and co-commissioned by Block Projects. This episode was made by Verity Burt and Una Hamilton-Heller. Rings of Time by Shirley Collins is courtesy of Topic Records, whereas all other sound is courtesy of Una and Verity. Editor and sound designer is Una Hamilton-Heller. To listen to a Deep England inspired playlist, search Beneath Clouded Hills on Spotify. The series theme tune is composed by Stephen Crow. Graphic design is by Blue Firth. This episode has been supported by Arts Council England and the European Research Council. For further credits, please see the show notes. <laughs>